Welcome to the Bible Study. I'm Stephen Lawson, president of One Passion Ministries, and each week I will teach verse by verse through a passage of Scripture so that you can better understand the Word of God and put it into practice in your life. Join me now as we look together into this section of the Bible. I want to begin by reading what, what is our one verse, verse 17. And as I read this verse, let me just make this introductory comment. You'll note verse 17 starts in the middle of a sentence. So this does not even start with a new sentence, whether you have New American Standard or ESV. We're actually picking this up in midstream. So this is a continuation uh, of a flow from verse 16. And what verse 17 is, and it's a very important verse. We're going to spend our whole time in just verse 17. Um, verse 17 is a transitional bridge that reaches back to verses, um, the previous verses that talk about being a child of God. And then they reach forward to the suffering of this present world. So verse 17, a child of God, and that presently as children of God, we, we suffer with Christ as we look ahead to the glory that we will share with Him. So, let, let's, let's begin now. And, I, you know, I guess I really should begin at the beginning of the, ver, of the sentence, which is verse 16, but it's really verse 17 that I want us to look at. So, verse 16 begins, For the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And we talked about last time how the Holy Spirit brings the internal witness of the assurance of our salvation. That's what the Spirit of God, one of His many ministries in our lives right now, is to testify to our heart that we are a child of God. So, that's 16. So now, and, and this is very important, it's not or, it's and. So this, this really expands from verse 16. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Let me just read the first part of verse 18, though we're not going to look at it. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So in verse 17, the key word is the word heirs, H-E-I-R-S. Um, this one word is mentioned three times in verse 17, so it's very obvious for, for us to isolate what is the main idea of verse 17. Um, every Bible lesson and every sermon should be in reality a one-point sermon. You may have three headings, and today we'll have four headings, but there's one point. There's always one driving truth in a passage. And if you're a Bible teacher, You've got to put your hand on that live nerve, that one dominant truth in a passage. 
whether it's one verse, three verses, five or six verses, there's one uh, big idea. There's one dominant theme that you have to identify. And for us, it's very easy because of the repetition. And it is the fact that we are heirs of God and heirs with Christ Jesus. So you see that clearly in verse 17. And if children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, an heir, by definition, is a person who is legally entitled to the property and possessions of an estate upon the death of the benefactor. So, an heir is someone who receives an inheritance that's passed down from the benefactor to the beneficiary. So an heir is a beneficiary. Um, He has not worked to accumulate something. Someone else has done the work, and it is passed down now to the recipient. So as Paul uses this word heir, and this is just still by way of introduction, it's a compound word in the Greek. It's it's four little words, uh, four four little letters, H-E-I-R, here in our English translation. Um, As a Greek word, it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's ten letters. It's It's much more complicated. And it's a compound word where two Greek words are merged together to form one large compound word, and the first word in the Greek means one who receives an allotted portion. And then the second part of the compound word is is really the Greek word for law, like the law of God. Um, It was used multiple times in Romans 7. And so when you pull these two together, the idea of an heir, it's one who receives an allotted portion of an estate as apportioned by the law upon the death of the benefactor. So that's what an heir is. Now, in this case, the benefactor has never died because the benefactor is God the Father, and He is the living God who can never die. Uh, He possesses immortality. And from everlasting to everlasting, He is God. He is God without beginning. He is God without end. And He is the living God. In this scenario, it is the beneficiary who dies. And when we die, we will receive the full allotment of the inheritance that comes to us. But the beneficiary will never die. So as we look at verse 17, there are four headings that I I want to set before you as we just kind of walk through this passage. And the four headings are very simply this, and I'll repeat them as we go through this. But all believers are heirs of God. That's number one. Number two, all believers are heirs with Christ. So there's a distinction here. First, we're heirs of God. Second, we're heirs with Christ. So we're going to have to make some distinction. Then third, all believers are heirs of suffering. 
And that refers to this present life before we die. And then fourth, all believers are heirs of glory when we will be glorified with Christ, and that will occur after we die. So let, let's walk through these four aspects, and all we're doing is just really slicing verse 17 into four parts, and we'll take them as they are written. So first, we see very clearly the beginning of verse 17. Number one, all believers are heirs of God. Now, this should be very important to every one of us, because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you're an heir of God. Let me tell you, that's a big deal. That's a very, that's a very big deal. Based upon the wealth of the benefactor and based upon the liberality with which he distributes his estate. So, notice how verse 17 begins, and, and I've already pointed out to you, the word and just continues the building argument of being a child of God. And if children, and I do want to just bring this to your attention, uh, verse 14 talks about sons of God. Uh, Verse 15 talks about sons who cry out, Abba, Father. Verse 16 talks about children of God. So you can see the the flow of thought stays the same. So, and if children, and that's referring to those who have been born again and adopted into God's family. Those are the two ways by which we become children of God. We, We are born again and we are adopted. It's not either or, it's both and. You're both born again and you are adopted and there are unique features that pertain to both. As it relates to adoption, it indicates that we are brought in as a fully mature adult son who has all the rights and all the privileges that would come to us as a member of the family of God. And so we are now included in the will. And what belongs to the Father will be passed down to us because we're adopted. So he says, and if children... Heirs also. So let's just stop there for a moment. This means every child of God who is born again and adopted is an heir, is a recipient of a vast inheritance from our Father. And so he then adds, heirs also, heirs of God. Now when he says heirs of God... This means that God is the source of this inheritance. God is the giver of this inheritance. It has all come from God. Every blessing in your life has come from God the Father. And I've told you before, I want to say it again, that I feel that in these days the forgotten member of the Trinity is God the Father. Much talk about God the Son, and rightly so. We preach Christ and Him crucified. Much talk about God the Holy Spirit. And standing in the shadows, sadly, is God the Father who has somehow become displaced and forgotten. And I want to remind all of us that every 
blessing, every single blessing, no exception, has come from the hand of God the Father. It has come from the Father, through the Son, applied by the Spirit. But let's not forget who the giver is, capital G. It's God the Father. And when we pray, we pray to God the Father through the Son in the Spirit. And we thank God the Father for all of His blessings that have been lavished upon us. There's nothing wrong with thanking the Son and the Spirit, but ultimately we are to thank the Father. And when Jesus taught us how to pray, Jesus did not say, pray to me. And Jesus, what Jesus said in Matthew 6 and verse 9, He said, this is how you are to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And you are to ask the Father for your daily bread. And you are to ask the Father for the forgiveness of your sin. And you are to ask the Father that His kingdom will come upon the earth. So, when we see here heirs of God, God here refers to God the Father. That's obvious in verse 17. That's just elementary observation that God is distinguished from Christ who is mentioned in the middle of verse 17. So, we are heirs of God. We are recipients of the Father's vast estate. Now, just to give you a couple of verses, Haggai 2, verse 8 says, All gold and silver are His. Um, it, it may be held in some vault someplace, but it still all belongs to the Father. Psalm 50 and verse 10 says, Every animal of the forest and every cattle on a thousand hills belongs to the Father. Someone else may be taking care of those cattle on one of those hills, but they're only stewards of what belongs to the Father. Uh, it is His by right of creation, and it is His by right of oversight and providence. So, His riches are so vast that they cannot even be numbered. They exceed human calculation. We can't get to a bottom line because it amasses to infinity. So let me just give you a couple of cross-references, and, and I really wish I had time to go into all of these, but let me just take you to some very obvious ones uh, in Galatians 4 and verse 7, and I'm having to skip over Acts 20, verse 32, and, but just look for a moment at Galatians 4 and verse 7, just so we... I just want you to see this is not an isolated truth here in Romans 8, 17, but in Galatians 4 and verse 7, he says, Therefore you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And when he says through God, he means through the gracious act of God, pointing back to God the Father. And you'll note that God in verse 7 is God the Father in verse 6, 
And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You see all three persons of the Trinity in verse 6. Uh, God refers to God the Father. And you come to the next verse, verse 7, when it says we are an heir through God. It's referring to God the Father. We are an heir in the gracious acts of God the Father as it is flowing from the Father to us. Um, you'll look right above in Galatians 3 and verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. And it was God the Father who made the promise to Abraham, then Abram, in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Um, let me just direct us maybe to one more, Titus 1, or excuse me, Titus 3 and verse 7. And I just passed over Ephesians 3 and verse 6. And at Titus 3 and verse 7. Um, so that being justified by His grace... Let me remind us, it's God the Father who justifies us. It is God the Father who declares that the righteousness of Christ belongs now to us in the act of justification. It's a forensic declaration of the righteousness of Christ to belong to us. But it is God the Father who pronounces it. It's God the Father who justifies. And I would easily refer you to Romans 8 and verse 30, where the He, those whom He predestined, He, he called, and those whom He called, He justified... And those whom he justified, he glorified. The he refers to God the Father. It's God the Father who justifies. And you'll also see it in Romans 8, 32 to 34. It's God the Father who justifies. Now, I make that point because now in Titus 3 and verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, that refers to the grace of God the Father, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So this is a very basic New Testament truth, and if you're jotting down cross-references, you can also jot down Hebrews 1.14 and Revelation 21.7. So this is a thread that's run through the pages of the New Testament. So here's our first heading as we look at verse 17 in Romans 8. All believers are heirs of of God. So there's not a condition placed on this. It's an indicative statement of fact. Uh, you are an heir of God. Now, second, all believers are heirs with Christ. Not heirs of Christ, but heirs with Christ. So as we continue to look at verse 17, he says, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. What this means is, Jesus is the principal heir, capital H. Jesus is the main heir, capital H. And we share in His inheritance. Because the Father has transferred everything over to the Son. 
the entire universe has been transferred over by the Father to the Son. I mean, think about uh, Matthew 28, verse 18 in the Great Commission. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Uh, Jesus said in John 5, All judgment has been given unto me. And in Ephesians 1, verse 22, Paul writes that all things are in subjection under His feet. Now just think about that. God the Father so wants His Son to be the object of our praise and worship and for all glory to go to His Son because it glorifies the Father for the Son to be glorified that the Father has transferred the legal right to the entire universe, including this world, to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is the principal heir. He is the main heir. And we now share in the inheritance that has come to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not because of us. It's because of Him. And everything has been transferred to Him, so now everything that belongs to Christ now belongs to us. And there are initial... Um, down payments of that for us to enjoy in this world. Uh, his righteousness has become our righteousness. His holiness has become our holiness. But also, uh, John 14, 27, His peace has become our peace. And John 15, 11, His joy is now our joy. And 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, His strength has now become our strength. So everything that belongs to Christ now belongs to us because we are in Christ. Now, we receive some of it in this lifetime. We receive the fullness in the world to come. But it's important for us to know at this point that we are fellow heirs with Christ. And again, just to stipulate, He is the principal heir who then in turn shares of the vast inheritance, which is everything. He shares that with, with us. So this now leads to number three, the third heading. All believers are heirs of suffering. So before we get too excited about this inheritance, <laughs> it's important for us to know that that means, means something in this lifetime. His peace, His joy, His righteousness, His holiness, His strength, yes, but also His suffering. And that's what he says in verse 17. So, please note, And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ... Now, note this next segment of the verse. If indeed we suffer with Him. So, what he is saying is, one of the distinguishing marks of every true child of God 
is that we share in the sufferings of Christ in this lifetime. Now, this utterly destroys the prosperity gospel. This utterly annihilates any teaching that if you're suffering, it's because you don't have enough faith. If you're in the hospital and you're sick, it's because you didn't have enough faith. You didn't name it and claim it. That is the devil's lie, and that is a damning gospel. That is not the true gospel. Because the true gospel says in verse 17 that if you're a true child of God, then you will share in the sufferings with Christ in this lifetime. So it's just the reverse. If you have faith in Christ, it doesn't mean there will be no suffering. It's just the opposite. If you have faith in Christ, you will have suffering. And this is a part of the cost of discipleship. This is a part of the price of being a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not a gravy train. Um, it, 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 we're not just coasting in the glory. We, we are swimming upstream against the current of this world. We have been placed now on the opposite side. We meet the devil head on. And we have three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But there are sufferings that now come to us because we've changed jerseys. And we've changed sides. And we now belong to the Lord. And if you're not sharing in the sufferings of Christ, let me just tell you, you are not a child of God. You are a child of the devil. Just put it bottom line, plain and simple. If you've got an easy life with no suffering, then you have not yet been born again. So, look at verse 17 again. If indeed we suffer with Him. Now, to suffer with Him... Let me tell you what it does not mean, then I'm going to tell you what it does mean. It does not mean that you and I made some bad decisions in life and we suffer the consequences of those. No, that's on you. <laughs> that's not on Christ. What this means when we suffer with Him, it means that we suffer for His namesake. That we suffer for His reputation. Uh, we suffer because we believe His truth and we speak up and testify for His truth. It means that we suffer because of the sacrifice that is required on our part to extend the kingdom of God. That we suffer because we're identified with Christ. We suffer because... We believe the gospel, we bear witness of the gospel, and we testify for the gospel. Now, this has just opened up, you know, the Northwest Passage. I mean, this has just opened up a vast realm of thought. And I, I, I want to try to stay as condensed as I can be, but this almost encompasses the entire Bible. Now, let me, let me just begin by looking at just Romans 8. 
I mean, let's just begin with Romans 8. And remember now, context is always the key in understanding a passage of Scripture. So, um, in verse, as this uh, unfolds, verse 18, note it begins with the word for, which introduces an explanation of what was just said in verse 17. So, verse 18 is inseparably connected to verse 17. 18 is connected to 17 by the beginning of uh, the verse with the word for. For I consider that the sufferings, please note in the plural, of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's the same contrast going on in verse 17 verse seven, and in the same order. Verse 17 talks about we suffer with Christ and we'll be glorified with Christ. Please note the order. Suffering now, glory later. One commentator has put it this way. Hurts now, hallelujahs later. There are sufferings in this present time, but Paul is quick to say, hey, they don't even begin to compare to the glory that is to follow. Put these on scales. The eternal weight of glory so far outweighs whatever little suffering we would go through in this world. It's not even worthy to, to compare an entire eternity future with the Lord being glorified with Christ compared to just a minuscule amount of time in this world that we would be battered around a bit for Christ. Now, let me just continue in, in Romans 8. Verse 20 talks about futility and, and being subjected. Verse 21 talks about slavery to corruption. Verse 22 talks about groans and suffers and pains of childbirth. Verse 23 talks about groans within ourselves. Now, go to verse 35 and 36. He talks about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, all of those are the sufferings with Christ. I mean, tribulation is our tribulation because we're identified with Christ. Distress here is not talking about we made some bad financial decisions. No, it's talking about we are distressed because we suffer for our identity with Christ. I would remind all of us, too, the term Christian was coined by the world as a term of derision and mockery for the believers, the disciples, who were on the way. And so the word Christian just simply means a little Christ, and, and the world looked down their long nose at the early believers and just said, yeah, you're one of those little Christs. One of, you know, the one that we crucified and, and he's no longer here with us, yeah, you're one, of, you're one of him. So even the term Christian is a term of derision. Um, but look at the rest of these words. Persecution, that's because of Christ. Famine, that's judgments of God upon the world in which we live that we suffer times of catastrophic judgments on the world that, come, that are inflicted by the hand of God and we're living in this fallen world. Uh, nakedness, that, that's because we've been run out of town and we've lost our job and we don't have any, even any clothes on our back because of Christ. 
peril, and then sword. The last one on sword is talking about martyrdom. Uh, I've I told you before, I keep in the front of my preaching Bible a picture of John Rogers. He's the first martyr burned at the stake by Bloody Mary, uh, February the 4th, 1555. Uh, John Rogers is a hero of the faith. I mean, he paid the price. It wasn't even a sword. That would have been an easier way to die. They strapped him to a stake in front of his church, in front of his 11 children and his wife, and they just burned him to death in front of his congregation and in front of the inhabitants of Smithfield in London. Um, so sword here refers to martyrdom and paying the ultimate price of being forced to give your life for Christ. I mean, there are some hills that are worth dying on, and gospel truths are worth dying on. And so then look at the next verse, verse 36. This is a follow-up of sword, which is mentioned last in verse 35. For just as it is written, and he now quotes Psalm 44, verse 22, for your sake, and your sake refers to God's sake. Again, now, it's not for, because of our bad decisions, because we've been needlessly abrasive with people. Uh, it's because of the glory of God, because of the cause of God. For your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. So the rest of Romans 8 is unmistakably clear that there are sufferings in this world because of our identity with Christ. Now, I don't hardly have time to do this, but I'm going to do this. Come just to a couple verses that Paul wrote. Philippians 1.29, and I, I've just got to squeeze this in. Philippians 1.29. I want you to see two verses in the book of Philippians. Philippians 1 and verse 29. Now, remember, Philippians is a book of joy, right? It's all about joy. But that doesn't mean the Christian life is a birthday party. Uh, I mean, there is suffering. I mean, just remember where Paul was when he wrote this, okay? <laughs> He's in prison in Rome for two long years, chained to Roman soldiers the whole time. So look at Philippians 1, 29. For to you, when he says you, he's referring to all believers in the church at Philippi, by extension, all believers down through the centuries, wherever you would find yourself, on whatever continent, whatever local church you go to, but to you it has been granted. So it is given by God for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him. Let's just stop right there. All saving faith is a gift of God. No one can believe in Jesus Christ apart from being given the gift of repentance and faith by God the Father. So, Freedom of the will is freedom to go to hell and to remain in unbelief. One may only believe in Jesus Christ when it has been granted to you to believe. Now, but notice the package deal. If you are given the gift of saving faith, he says, but also to suffer for his sake. So it's the heads and tails of the same coin. It's a package deal. These are Siamese twins. They're joined together at the hip. If God gives you the gift of saving faith, 
He will also give you the gift of suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this works in different ways, in different cultures, different places in society. Some people are in more visible places. Some people are more behind the scenes. Some people are in uh, cultures that are, more fr- that are friendlier to Christianity. Others are in cultures that are hostile to Christianity. So, so there's a lot of variance here. And this doesn't mean that we're to have a martyr spirit and, and just start, you know, walking in front of cars without looking both ways just to suffer. But this is saying that if you speak up, if you stand up, if you let your flag fly, there's going to be some flack that'll come. And if you're going to be a man of principle, and if you're going to live out the reality of Christ, um, and speak up to your in-laws, speak up to your next-door neighbor, speak to people about Christ, there's going to be return serve coming back at you, depending upon the setting, the circumstance, the occasion, all of that. But it's par for the course. I I think you can clearly see that uh, in, in your Bible. Now, come to Philippians 3 and verse 10, as long as we're in Philippians. And there's so many verses I've got on this little note card. There's just, I, I, I wish we could go through this. And let me just tell you this. I went through these verses a couple years ago when I was preaching in Russia. It's the only time I've ever preached and someone said, there's a good chance you're going to be arrested. The KGB showed up. And as I began to preach this, this was unbelie- teach this, this was unbelievable how this resonated with believers in Russia. This is going to become increasingly resonating, resonating with us as we see even our country, our culture, our society just changing before our, our very eyes. Just put your name up to be Supreme Court judge and see what happens. All right, so look at Philippians 3, verse 10. Sorry to be so relevant. Uh, Philippians 3, verse 10. That I may know Him, talking about Christ, that I may have a personal relationship with Christ and grow to know Him more deeply and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Please note the word and. These are all strung together. This isn't a multiple choice. There's not or. (laughs) I just want to know Him. That's all I want. Or I want to know Him and I want the power of His resurrection. Let's just put the period at the end of the sentence there. No, the sentence keeps going. And the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. It is our sufferings that conform us into the very sufferings of Christ and the yieldedness by which He gave Himself upon the cross. God has higher purposes in our lives, even through our suffering for the gospel. I agree with John Piper. God's doing a thousand things in your life right now. You're only aware of probably about two of those. He's got another 998 things presently on the table that He's working out in your life just, we, we just don't know that we don't know. We're just completely oblivious to all of these other aspects 
of God working in our sanctification to grow us and to mature us. So, uh, I, I just got to give you a couple more verses here on this. 1 Thessalonians 3 and verse 3. So that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. <laughs> what that's saying is, we have been predestined to suffer. Um, this, was, this path was marked out for us from before the foundation of the world. Uh, th this, this path of suffering in the Christian life was foreordained before time began. It's inescapable. And then 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 will be the final one we'll look at. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So, again, it would be impossible to hold to some prosperity gospel. You, 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 you would be reading your Bible in a dark room with blindfolders on and your eyes are closed and your Bible is upside down and closed to come up with such a harebrained interpretation of Scripture. No, it is foreordained as an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ that we will share in His sufferings. But let me tell you, God works it all for good. Uh, God works it for the advancement of the gospel. Just read the book of Acts. I mean, it was, it was only the persecution that flushed them out of Jerusalem to take the gospel to the, the ends of the world. Um, God, James 1, 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. That was addressed to believers who are being scattered around the earth. Uh, James 1, verse 1. So, I need to move on. The point has been made. But if you are a child of God, you're an heir of God. If you're an heir of God, you're an heir with Christ. And if you're an heir with Christ, you're an heir in suffering with Christ. It's just it's a package deal. And God did not even spare His own Son this. Now, fourth and finally... At the end of verse 17, you remember eight, Romans 8, verse 17, don't you? Um, Romans 8, 17, at the end of the verse, I want you to see number four, all believers are heirs of glory. Now, this just opened up, you know, the vast orient. I mean, this just opened up realms of truth that to which, for which we don't have time to explore but notice how the verse ends, so that we also may also be glorified with Him. The ESV says, in order that we may be glorified with Him. So there's, what this is saying, there is a purpose to the suffering. It, it is not unpurposeful, it is very purposeful so that we may share in the glory 
with Christ to come. Now, here's what we need to understand at this point before we begin to unpack this. The more you suffer with Christ in this world, the greater will be the glory that you will experience in the world to come. Hell will not be the same for everyone. There are some places that are hotter than others. And there is a sense in which the glory will not all be the same. There will be different measures of glory in heaven. And there will be greater recognition in heaven for some than others. Uh, I, I can assure you the martyrs in heaven are being singled out right now in Revelation 6 as those closest to the altar. I mean, they're like in a special category unto themselves because they suffered so much for the gospel in this world. God has them recognized in heaven. Now, I don't know how this all works out. And I don't... Obviously, just to be in heaven and to be in glory is... Is, is glorious and wonderful, but Paul is wanting to motivate us that as we suffer for Christ in this world, it will lead to glory with Christ in the world to come. And the greater your pain, the greater will be the gain on the last day. So notice, he says, so that we, the we refers to all believers, okay? Not some believers, all believers, you and me, so that we may also, the word also tells us this is a package deal. Suffer with Christ, now be glorified with Christ. And to be glorified with Christ takes in so much, I'm just going to read you the headings on this crazy card here I've got. You're not even going to be able to write this down. Chris, so, so don't even try, but uh, just so we can get it into this study, because I don't want this to become another study. A heavenly home, a glorified body, a perfected spirit, eternal reward, endless rain, full access, white garments, hidden manna, permanent relationship. And the beatific vision, which is the ultimate blessing of every blessing, which is to look upon the face of God. In ancient times, very few people ever saw the face of the king. He did not reveal himself to peasants and to serfs and to commoners. It was only those in the inner circle that even ever saw the face of the king. And maybe once in a lifetime you might see him in a carriage go down the street and from a distance maybe just see a profile through a window in the carriage. But rarely were citizens allowed to see the king. But it says in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 22, verse 4, that the greatest blessing that we will ever know is to look upon the face of God and to see Him. Now, God is spirit, and I'm not certain exactly how that will all pan out. 
and what that will be. Because God has always manifested himself in a self-disclosure with light, bright shining light. I don't know what it will be like for us on that day because God does not have a body. Only God the Son has a body. That's the uniqueness of the incarnation and the virgin birth. The Father and the Spirit do not have a corporal body upon which we can look. But it nevertheless says we will look upon the face of God. That means you will have direct, unmediated access to God. We love Him by faith now, having never seen Him, and that day we will behold Him, which far exceeds walking on streets of gold, far exceeds seeing gates of pearl, walls of the various precious metals. In fact, the glory that will emanate from the face of God will be so radiant and so brilliant that in the new creation, in the new heavens, in the new earth, God will snuff out the sun, S-U-N, and there will be no need for any artificial light or artificial illumination, but simply the effulgent outshining of the greatness and the grandeur and the glory of God will light up the entire universe. And we will look directly upon Him with glorified eyes that will be able to look upon Him and not be burned up like a cinder. With a glorified body that will be able to be in His presence and not be consumed. Just like, glorified, just like bodies in hell will never perish because they will have a body that will endure the flames of hell forever. So we will have a body perfectly adapted for our new environment in heaven to be able to be in the immediate presence of God and not to be burned up. I mean, that's why even when they had a small glimpse of the deity of Christ, even in, as he was veiled in his, in his servant's appearance, John, depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I can't even stand in your presence. And when John saw the glorified Christ on the Isle of Patmos, he fell at his feet as a dead man, which just simply means he fainted. He, he just went unconscious. He couldn't even... Stand in the presence of the glorified Christ, whose face was shining like the sun, it says. Because John had not yet received a glorified body. So we will, in, this, in our being glorified with Christ, there will be the eradication of any sinful desires. There will only be the new man that we received in our new birth that will go on. It will only be high and lofty and pure thoughts. We will never grow weary or tired. We will worship Him forever and ever and ever. 
and never need a sabbatical and never need time off, never need to rest because we will have a supernatural body that will be endued with supernatural power to worship God and to love God and to serve God. Our heart will be enlarged so much so that we cannot even begin to comprehend the capacity with which we will have to adore God and to love God and to be able to serve God and to have access to God. We will be glorified with Christ, meaning we will be as much like Christ as a redeemed creature can be made like Christ. We will still never be on His level. And even in heaven, there will be a sea of crystal around the throne of God that even then still makes this distinction between the creature, the creator, and the creature. So we're we're not going to be completely like Him because He will be forever God and we will be forever sons and daughters of God. But we will be so exponentially glorified that this will be uh, a part of this full inheritance. And ultimately, our greatest inheritance is God Himself. You remember when they portioned out the land to the twelve tribes of, of Israel. When they came to the Levites, there was no land to be given to them. God says, instead, I give you the best part. I give you myself. And they inherited God. He ultimately will be our greatest inheritance in heaven as we will possess a relationship with Him that will be marked by purity and intimacy and transparency that will fill and flood our hearts with joy unspeakable and full of glory, the likes of which we cannot even begin to, to comprehend. So, as I, as I wrap this up and I'm looking at the clock, I, I kind of need to land this. Um, but I told you we opened up so many realms of truth with this. Let me just remind us how the, the Christian life works. That it is suffering now glory later. And there are a few mercy droppings of glory now. God's put His Holy Spirit inside of us. God's clothed us with the righteousness of Christ. The peace and the joy and the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. God has marked out our path and He's gone before us. And we walk with Him, and we fellowship with Him, and we pray to Him. But it's, it's, only, it's only like just a small down payment to hold the possession or the property for the future possession. Knowing that one day the fullness of the inheritance will come to us. So it should be motivation that whatever pain and suffering I go through now, it's so inconsequential. It's so tiny 
it's hardly worth a band-aid to be put on it compared to the extraordinary glory that awaits us in heaven. So we need to keep our eyes on the prize. We need to keep our eyes on this future glory as it pulls us through this veil, this valley of tears as we live here on this earth, as, as we suffer with Christ now. We suffer rejection. We suffer ridicule. We suffer reproach. Yes, we do. But it's, it's nothing. It's not even a fleck of a grain of sand on the scales compared to the eternal weight of glory that's on the other side of the scales that is awaiting us. So, um, I'm glad that we pulled over and parked just a little bit on verse 17. And we will not be meeting next week. I'm going to be in Belfast, Northern Ireland, preaching next Thursday. But the following Thursday, I'll, I'll be here. I'm flying from Dublin to Louisville and Al Mohler's 25th anniversary as president of Southern Seminary. But I'm cutting that tight so I can get on a plane and fly back here in two, in two Wednesdays to be here in two Thursdays. So in two weeks, two Thursdays from today, we'll be in verse 18. <coughs> we'll be in verse 18 as we will consider the sufferings of this present world in which we live and how they are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us, and then this theme of future glory will run through the rest of Romans chapter 8. So, I mean, many would say we're in the best part of the Bible, Romans chapter 8. So, uh, if there's ever a time to, to be a part of this study, it would have to be Romans 8. But then we have Romans 9, okay, to look forward to. So, we've got a lot ahead of us. So, let me just close in a word of prayer, knowing uh, what the time is. And um, Father, thank you for this study that we've had today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the accuracy of it. Thank you for the profundity of it, um, the wisdom, the truth, the veracity of it. Um, and Lord, I pray that you would be the great teacher by your spirit um, to unveil before our eyes just something of what is packed into this one verse. May you seal it to our hearts. May we carry it with us throughout the day. May it be like the loaves and the fish. May you cause it to, to grow and to multiply. And may these truths that we've looked at today grow even larger in our own hearts and minds as we walk with you today. Bless these men as they go to their offices, as they go to their places of employment. May they be bright, shining witnesses for Christ this day, both in how they live, but also in what they say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining me for the Bible study. If this was helpful for your Christian walk, please leave us a review wherever you listen to this show. And if you want to connect on social media, I can be found at Dr. Stephen J. Lawson or 
at One Passion Ministries. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me again next week.